Hello and welcome. This is Friend Request. I'm your host, Justin Lamb, and this is episode 148 with my friend, Annalisa Six. Uh, if you think Annalisa, oh my God, is it Annalisa? Annalisa? If you think Annalisa Six is a rock star name, you're not far off. And it, it really comes to what, what came first, the, the chicken or the egg? And to answer that, I will give it over to her. So without further ado, here's my friend, Annalisa. You and I have lots in common. My request is sent. Would you like to be my friend? Would you like to be my friend? <laughs> Thanks for doing Hi. this. <laughs> yeah, thanks for asking me. I still kind of feel a little bit like I looked at your podcast yeah. and was trying to absorb kind of what to prepare for, but I still don't feel like I even know what I'm going to talk about. As long as you have lived your life, whatever way you lived your life, I think that's all the preparation you need. Um, <laughs> otherwise, I'm not doing my job, I think is the opposite side of that, because then I'm Got not it. I'm not asking the right questions or letting you talk. <laughs> well, I normally start out with how I know people. And the, okay. the little I do know about you is through our mutual friend and colleague, Elise Bryson, um, and the sober curator. Uh, but outside yeah. of that, and, and the astrology stuff, like, that's, a, that's about it. And yeah, so I, I'm excited to dive in. I think you are such a unique person when I see you on Zooms and when I've seen your um, astrology stuff on YouTube and, and Sober Curator. And so I'm so curious to to dig in there and find out who you are. Okay. Can cool. I can I start with something that I think is super yeah. not funny? Funny is the wrong word. But so your name is Annalisa Six. Yes. Is that your name? Yeah, like, that's that my is... legal name. Okay. Yeah. So um, how do you have that name and you're not name. like the lead singer of a band in the 70s? Like, <laughs> in Thank the you. Fucking I ask myself <laughs> that all the time. Um, no, my maiden last name is Caples hyphen Nylander. Oh, so my mom, I'm Hispanic. Name. So it's really okay. common in Mexican culture to have like a hyphenated okay. last name, your mom and your dad's last name. And my parents were never married, so like it made sense for them to hyphenate my last name. But my mom's last name is Caples, which is actually an English name. It's not a Mexican last name, say, so there's a lot of confusion around Mexican. that. <laughs> yeah. My mom's father, his dad had English descent, and Caples was like a family okay. from that that it's a long story there. And then Nylander was my dad's last name. And when I married my husband, his last name was legally six. And he is a musician. I also am a musician, but he is a more well known musician than me. So I even when we started dating and had known him thought it was a stage name, because yeah. it was really common in rock and roll for people to like yeah. I made up stage names all the time because I oh, wasn't yeah. going to have Capel's hyphen Nylander I was my... blessed with Justin Lamb so I didn't need yeah to. that's a great name <laughs> it's a solid name and so I always had stage names in every band which I'm so thankful for because you can't really google yeah. me and see a lot of my early projects that Lucky I did you. only I know what to google you know <laughs> which is nice but um, yeah, so when I got together with my husband, I was like, so what's your real last name? And he was like, six is my real last name. And I was so floored. Funny. I was like, yeah. I can't believe that's your real last name. And sure enough, it is uh, derived from Sixtus, which is a very ancient, well, old, I don't know if you would still say ancient. It's an old 
um, name from Europe that, you know, there was like a famous Pope from like the 15th century oh. that was Pope Sixtus, the whatever. And um, then it, yeah, it's cool. <laughs> and then it got abbreviated to six and it actually was um, the first mayor of Amsterdam was a six and he was friends with Rembrandt. And there is actually a six family museum in Amsterdam. And there's also um, a connection to the director who created the Human Centipede movie is also a descendant sure. of the six <laughs> name. Yeah, <laughs> that is a lengthy and educated history on the six name. <laughs> yes, and I actually looked all that up. My husband didn't know that stuff. Yeah, it's just it, it, it's so funny. And the little I know about you, I feel like it fits. So I guess you married into the right name. <laughs> I feel that way for sure. It's funny, though, because my numerology, I'm an eight and my favorite number is eight, which I think is just probably because of the fact that I have a lot of eights in my birthday and stuff. But then when I was getting into the astrology numerology stuff, I had to look up my husband's numerology and he's a six. Oh, perfect. Isn't do that you, crazy? That is funny. Do you yeah. guys do, do you do anything with the Enneagram? I have done it. I don't remember exactly what I am. I think oh. I'm a seven with a six leg okay. or something like that. That's, I was like, I was wondering um, if one of those eight or six fell in there too. Um, I know me too. Yeah, no, I don't have an eight in there. Um, I love astrology so much that sometimes some of those other branches fall short for me. Okay. Fair enough. Um, yeah, it, yeah. it's, it can all get to be a bit too much if you like oversaturate, you know what I mean? Um, yes. But let's, I'm uh, sorry, that was my, my first question was a huge, <laughs> take us, take us in a left field. Um, you are in California, correct? Yep. What part of California are you in? I live in a town called Yucca Valley, which is right next door to Joshua Tree. Okay. So you're, you're out there. Out I'm in, in the... Southern, it's Southern California high desert. We're yeah, like yeah. a little over 3000 feet. Okay. Fun. Um, and were you born and raised out there? I wish I was born. <laughs> well, maybe I don't wish. Cause then I probably wouldn't be yeah, down no. to stay here. I was actually raised somewhere that's totally different, but weirdly similar in a lot of ways. I was raised in Ellensburg, Washington, oh, okay. which is a rodeo town in Eastern Washington, a rodeo town. That's what it's yeah, like. They known just for? celebrated a hundred years of rodeo this year. Oh, all yeah. right. Well, <laughs> to each their own, I guess. On... <laughs> yep. I, I know a lot of uh, a lot of cringes just happened when rodeo was mentioned because. Right. It's, yep. It's, it didn't age well. <laughs> no, it's a very um, problematic industry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you're born in Washington. Um, siblings. Yeah, I have two half siblings. We don't really call each other half siblings, but yeah. they are. Uh, I have a brother, a younger brother, and a younger sister. Okay, but it's just you and and your parents in Washington when you're born. Yeah, I was the first born, and my brother was born when I was about three and a half. So what what does it look like? Uh, I mean, like, what does your mom do? What is your what's the dad situation? What's how's that? shape oh, up all of when you're things. a kid oh yeah, yeah we're gonna start real when young and kid? work our way up wow okay well this is crazy so both sets of my grandparents are professors were teachers oh nice and they were not washingtonian so my mom's side was all mexican you know immigrated from mexico except for the one english 
father yeah. that he wasn't English. He was American, but you know, English yeah. descent. And um, so that was my mom's side and her parents um, decided they were teachers. So they had traveled around the United States actually establishing ESL programs in wow. schools. Yeah. And they, they ended up in Washington and at central Washington university. So that was how my mom ended up in Ellensburg. Cause there's a college there and she was in middle school. And then my dad was born in Yakima, which is a small town east of Ellensburg. And um, he was actually adopted by my grandma and grandpa because my grandma couldn't have children after my aunt was born. She had five miscarriages and had a lot of problems, you know, and so she adopted my dad and um, she had moved to Ellensburg for the same reason. So her husband, my grandfather was a professor and she was a teacher of water ballet and they found this cute town, you know, with a college that was a farm town and country and all the things that they enjoyed to do. But they were originally from the Midwest and they had um, Swedish ancestry. So their yeah. family had immigrated. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the, I wonder, is the ESL thing a point of pride in your family? Like, did they kind of bring that to schools? Because timeline wise, I feel like that would be a time when that wasn't really happening at all. Yeah, it was in the 70s that they were doing that. And I think it's a point of pride for my mom. My grandma doesn't really talk about it. I mean, I think she's prideful of certain things around that. There is so kind of flash forwarding to my parents, my parents went to high school and middle school together. Okay. And they they were my mom was my dad's first girlfriend. And my dad was like the long haired. This was the 80s. Yeah. My parents are really young. This was the 80s. My mom was like the new wave chick, kind of like Molly Ringwall a little bit, like a little popular, but a little too edgy to be like super popular. And then my dad was the long haired heavy metal guy that was always like ditching class and partying and getting in trouble. So they start dating and they um, my mom breaks up with him because my dad's kind of a loser. She's like, I'm too good for this guy, you know, and what ended up happening during this time was my mom's father actually contracted AIDS and started he started dying and so my mom and my grandmother were taking care of him and while my mom and my dad were broken up it was like right after she graduated high school my dad was still not in high school and he, like he had already graduated and was yeah. in his early 20s at this point um he was 21 she was 18 she had just finished high school they ended up at a party together broken up still and she was you know going through a lot and, and so she was Annalisa. very <laughs> Yeah, she was like, you know, kind of screw it. Like, yeah. I'm going to have some fun with my ex-boyfriend. And then that's how I was Those are, <laughs> conceived. I'm going to go ahead and guess that you and your mom have a really close relationship. I'm really close with both my parents. Okay. Yeah, I mean, my whole family. I mean, those family, are some intimate yeah. details about that, <laughs> that moment. Yeah, so yeah. And then, you know, I've... I feel like there are just stories that, you know, are in the family and then they tried to make it work, you know, yeah. as young people and it didn't. And so I grew up with a very close family, especially because after my mom, my mom's dad was dying while she was pregnant with me. Yeah. So he died right before I was born. And um, I was born into a family that was very excited about me coming into the world and very much wanting to like make sure that the trauma of my parents' youth and my mom's 
dad passing away wasn't what I grew up thinking about in that sense. So everybody overcompensated by spoiling me and giving me everything I wanted, which worked. I grew up feeling very loved and very (laughs) blessed. And I had a lot of family, you know, my parents, despite everything, did a really good job of working together, you know, um, for a long time. And so I think that I'm I'm just curious. um, Did you, When did you find out that your grandfather died of AIDS? I don't remember ever finding out. I just remember it being something that we talked about, but I remember not being able to tell people. So I remember kind of being in a position where it was like, I knew that and I knew kind of like a bit about it, but I didn't really know. Like, I remember like it being kind of this thing that we didn't really, you know, share with other people. The only reason I ask that is, um, I know you're you're younger than me, but um, I was born in '83, yeah. And like, fuck, we heard about AIDS all the time when we were kids. Yeah. So it's like, <laughs> and I like didn't know anything about. It. it was just like, watch out for AIDS. You're like, what? Um, and nobody I knew, including myself, obviously knew anyone that like had AIDS or died from AIDS or anything like anything AIDS related except for fucking like Magic Johnson, right? So it was just like Yeah. Um right. It was just the it was almost like this boogeyman of the eighties if you lived in any suburban area of the country because it seemed like, oh, this is only affecting homosexual men in big cities. And you're like, okay, then I guess it's fine. Like so I wonder what your experience was knowing like, oh, I've heard of that. Like a direct family member I never met died from that. Like, did that click at all when the whole eighties, nineties, eighties high school? Yeah. Like I think once I was in high school, that's when I was like, Whoa, wait a minute. You know? Cause I, I grew up with a very like progressive family. So we had friends in our lives that were homosexual yeah, and that were, you know, HIV positive. And I think that I was raised to be so, non-judgmental about that stuff but it didn't really hit me like what exactly my family had been through probably till high school okay yeah that's just that's such a like zeitgeisty thing that not a lot of people i feel well i mean obviously a lot of people it was a fucking epidemic but (laughs) uh, in the grand scheme of the population talk about it Uh, yeah yeah like people didn't talk about that stuff so yeah i think it's still taken like i mean even just my mom never really opened up about her dad's death until pretty recently. I think in the family, I've probably been the most open about it. Um, I did like an Instagram post for my grandfather for the first time, like a few years ago, I think where I acknowledged it. And I think I got to a point kind of like in my early twenties where I felt a lot of anger about things in my family, which I think is normal. I mean, I had anger about my family before that, but like my early twenties was really when I kind of like started to process stuff. And then by my late twenties, I kind of started to really want to know more in terms of like what had really happened and kind of why we didn't talk about it more. And I kind of like, you know, mortality, the older you get, you start to really think about like, Oh, we don't live for a long time or, Oh, wow. That was really traumatic. And just all that kind of stuff. And I think that that trauma in the family, since it happened pre my birth, and then my brother came into the picture, 
with his, you know, he had a different family, like dad and all of that. He came into the picture when I was about three and a half. So it just kind of shaped like a totally different story of my life. And so everything that happened in my family prior to my birth, I just didn't, I wasn't really thinking about until yeah. I got older. What, uh, what does that look like <laughs> when, when you say your brother came into the family, he's, he's born when you're three and a half, you said? Yeah. And I watched him be born. You remember that? Yeah, he was. Wow. Um, so my mom decided to have a midwife and he was actually born in the same room that my grandfather passed away in. Full life cycle. I'm trying to connect yeah. those two things. Um, <laughs> yeah. What, did she like remarry? Did she just meet somebody she else? Did. Okay. Yeah. She was never married to my dad. Cause you know, they were yeah, so yeah, young yeah. and yeah. just kind of whatever. And so she did get married to my brother's dad and they were, they got married, I think while she was pregnant with my brother right after, I can't remember. I'm pretty sure he wasn't born yet okay. um, from how I remember it. And then, yeah. So then they were married for five years and got divorced when I was about eight. And then she was single. My mom was single for a couple of years and then met my sister's dad, who she's still married to now. They've been married 20 years, 21 years. And I think she was 28 when she met my sister's dad um, and then had my sister a couple years later. So this all happened in my mom's 20s, you know, like yeah. this was all her, like that's so much life to live in such a short period of time. Yeah. So it makes sense to me that, you know, my sister's dad ended up being the one that worked out was the more stable relationship oh, yeah. too. Yeah, yeah. I can... I can no substitute people for yeah. all of those stories. Um, what Do you have any recollection of what it was like to, I mean, you talked about how you were kind of spoiled and you felt very loved. Um, I'm wondering what that transition is like of like, you're no longer the only child. And then also what your relationship's like with, um, with uh, your brother's dad when you're a kid. Yeah. Well he, my mom was dating my brother's dad before my brother came along. And so he was like a second dad to me. Like we had a really good relationship. And I think that, um, you know, I saw him as a second father figure a lot. And once my brother came along, there was definitely the, like, I'm so excited for my little brother until he starts stealing all of my stuff. Right. Yeah. So it was like, he wanted everything that I had. And then I was like, wait a minute. So we definitely had a lot of sibling rivalry, but um, you know, I think the one thing that was kind of hard was that I, I don't know. It's interesting. Like I had so much abundance with each side of my family that I just kind of got the best of it all. Like I had, my dad kind of spoiling me over here, his family spoiling me over here, my mom, you know, and my grandma here, and then my brother's dad and his grandparents. And I felt like everyone really came through and was yeah. showering me with a lot of attention. But my brother, um, once issues started to happen with his dad, with my mom, that family started to pull away. And unlike my dad's family, his family didn't like the blended family kind of dynamic and so what that created for my brother was kind of a lot more um yeah. tension between everyone and that's when things really started to kind of you know the like kind of cracks and everything started to come up for everybody because it was less like people wanting to work together so i think 
that's when things, I mean, between my brother and I started to get worse and between all of our families started to get worse. Like by the time I was in middle school, things were pretty, like I didn't really interact with my brother's dad's side at all. Did your, did that custody change then? So you didn't really see him every day either or? That's a good question. I avoided that time in my family kind of a lot because his dad, the, the, energy in the house was not good at my mom's with his dad. So I would go stay at my dad's usually. Okay. And so there was periods where I saw my brother all the time and periods where I didn't yeah. really. And, and then I actually moved out at 16. Okay. And how much younger yeah. is your sister? She's 11 years younger than uh, me. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So she only had me in the house for a few years. Yeah. What's that look like? Um, like your mom, Marrying someone else, having another kid, you're 11, you're like, hey, I remember this happening before and it didn't end super well. So, Yeah, I think that like, I was really supportive of my mom getting divorced. I was really supportive of my mom moving on and getting married again. I was kind of a brat at her wedding, which, you know, I think I was like 13 when she got married again. And I was like that age where you're just a brat about everything and so I feel kind of bad that you know I couldn't show up for her the way that now I feel like I would like I remember she was crying in the car on like she was in a convertible with all her bridesmaids and I was one of the bridesmaids and she was crying and you know all the women were like around her and I was just like eye rolling you know like god mom why are you so emotional now I cry at like every wedding I go to you yeah. know so I just think it's kind of I look back at that and I'm like oh I feel bad it was such a jerk to my mom but I think I was legitimately happy for her that she had moved on I think to my perspective on that stuff I was so young and so just I didn't it just was what it was yeah. like I didn't know any different yeah you know that I was well, just like you, people do this you kind of create whatever you need to to get through that because we don't have all the like words to say how we're feeling and express ourselves or even know what those emotions are that that are happening so that comes out in rebellion and that comes out in right fits and anger and yeah i i used to i try well i still probably do but i try to cut down on the amount of shit that i talk about little kid justin (laughs) Because <laughs> yourself, your inner yeah, child. Because part of me yeah. is like, oh man, I was a fucking dick. But then um, <laughs> it's really, if if I think about just seeing a kid acting out, I'm not really thinking, oh, that kid's a fucking dick. I'm thinking like, yeah, oh god, that kid's probably got some shit going on. I feel so bad for him. And it's not necessarily like the parents' fault either, because they probably have some shit going on too, and they didn't learn good coping, but like. You know, it's generational. So if I can forgive that strange fucking kid that's being a pain in my ass at like the fucking restaurant, then maybe I can like lend that same compassion to myself. And so I try not to talk shit about myself as a kid um, and like blame myself. Uh, It's it's taken years. Yeah. (laughs) But I I only say that because you're talking about just being a being a kind of an asshole (laughs) yeah there's like shame you have over certain memories that you're like wow that was not my best self for sure but yeah then again I was 12 13 and a lot happened you know I think I didn't really have I mean obviously yes like I acted out and had a ton of issues like there was tons of stuff I was I self-harmed growing up 
Um, and I never really understood why, because that's kind of the thing that's hard, right? It's like when your family is showing you love and they're spoiling you and you're, you're full of all this abundance. And then yet you're having this like behavioral stuff come out and you have like high levels of anxiety at a really early age and you get dismissed a lot for those things. And nobody's looking at your self-harm as like something that they need to like take you to a specialist to go see, um, it's really hard to understand why all that's happening. Right. And now that I'm older and now that our like mental health, like and wellness world is where it's at now, it's so obvious to me. Like I look at so much and I'm like, Oh, my childhood was equal parts fucked and equal parts. Great. Like those are living synonymously, you know, together. So it's like, you hear me talk about one side of my childhood and it's like, wow, it sounds amazing. And then you hear this other side and it sounds like, how am I still alive? You know, how did I not, how did I get sober? You know, that kind of stuff. So it's a dichotomy that I think is really common. Like I think that yeah, a lot create, of us have that. We create these like <clears throat> absolute rules, right? Like it, yeah. was, it was either good or bad. And if it was bad, yeah. it's probably my fault. Or if it was, and if it was good, like I was just being dramatic or what, like it can't be both, but in reality, like everything's pretty fucking gray area. <laughs> Yeah, it's all gray area for sure. Well, and then thinking of like the trauma that my mom didn't really get to process or work through that I just came into the world and then everything kind of just snowballed, you know, and she was so young. So that's the origin of Annalisa. (laughs) And, you know, can I can I ask (laughs) and and obviously feel free to decline to answer. um, But did you have you worked on or figured out like where that self-harm came from and like what you were trying to convey in that action? I think it was an anxiety driven behavior that I actually think is not just what was happening around me, but also there's a high level of neurosis on my mom's side yeah, genetically. And of course I don't know my dad's stuff because he's adopted. So in terms of his like, family's disposition I don't know but I do know that anxiety and just kind of this inability to like cope with certain aspects of life is really common on that on my mom's side so it's like I think for a period I thought like oh this was I was doing this as a result of these things going on in my childhood and Mm -hmm. now I actually see it like oh I think there's more of this genetic disposition towards anxiety and this kind of neurotic tendency. And I think self-harm was like a way of me dealing with that anxiety at an early age. Like I didn't know how else to deal with anxiety. And I don't think that my family saw me as having anxiety. Like I don't, I didn't know I was having anxiety or panic attacks till I was 17. Okay. And I had a boss, like she pulled me aside and was like, you're having panic attacks, you know? And I was like, Oh, I don't even know what that is. You know? And thank God for that boss telling me at 17, because I had friends that didn't find that out till their 20s. You know, they go to the emergency room and they're like, I'm dying. And the doctor's like, you're just having a panic attack, you know? So I'm grateful for that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm just like running through my head all of the things that are symptoms of any number of anxiety ADHD depression like whatever between like me my wife and like other people in my world that like didn't figure out till late 20s early 30s <laughs> like yeah or, I mean oh, I just totally. got diagnosed with ADHD officially um this year like Congrats. right before I turned fucking 40 so it's, yeah 
It's crazy. One of my one of my people in my life just got diagnosed, and she's fifty three. God, yeah, it's yeah, a it's crazy. The biggest pain in the ass of it is like, all of a sudden you see, oh, that's what this was. That's what this was. That's what this was. And then this like underlying resentment where I'm like, bitch, I've been in therapy for like eight years. No one caught this. <laughs> like, yeah, come on. like why wasn't this said to me? Yeah. No, totally. Um, yeah. It's a, it's a strange thing, but it's not about me. Um, <laughs> so it is, too, isn't it? <laughs> why, why else did I create this fucking thing? Um, yeah. <laughs> so on the note of coping with anxieties as a teenager, you move out. Are you drinking, doing any drugs or anything at that point? Or is that come later? Well, what's interesting is so my parents being as young as they were and they my parents loved to party. I grew up going to a lot of adult parties. And I just knew that if I partied under my parents' roof, it was not going to be fun. I was like, they're going to know everything. Yeah. And I don't want to, like, I'd watch my friends get in trouble with their parents. And it was so cringe to me. Like, I was just like, Ugh, like, why would you want to do that? And so I never smoked. I never drank. I never did anything until I moved out. But I moved out at 16. Yeah. So I think it was within six months of me being on my own that I started to drink and smoke and do all that stuff. And did you Part stay in it, high like, school? I dropped out of high school when I moved out. Okay. So I went to three different high schools, one in Ellensburg. Then we moved to Seattle because I was going to kill myself if we didn't move to Seattle. Like I had gotten really depressed living yeah. in a rodeo town and being not that way. Yeah. And I was self-harming. And so we moved to a progressive city and put me in like a progressive school for kids that have issues but we didn't really deal with any of my issues. We just, you know, just we changed school. the environment, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. And put me in that school. And then that school I didn't do very well in. So we put me in a different school. And by that point, um, I was so over it. You know, I wanted to be a rock star. I was like, I'm going to be a rock star and I'm going to play music. And that's what I'm going to do with my life. And I had started doing, I actively started playing in a band when I was 12 years old. Yes. We'd put a vinyl record out. We'd put two vinyl records out yes. on an English record label. Yeah, and we were getting written up in all these punk scenes. We were getting asked to play shows all over, you know. Is this a band and name we you're going to share or no? <laughs> we were called Savage Lucy. Okay. And my dad actually came up with our tagline, which was the youngest all-girl punk band in the world. He was <sighs> like, you guys should just tagline yourself oh, that way because then it'll attract people. And it did. It yeah. worked. If I saw all-girl punk band when I was 14, I would have been like, guys, we're going to this fucking show. <laughs> Yeah, Absolutely. no, it totally worked. We had tons of guy fans. I had tons of old men fans too. Well, like, yeah, because men, men are the yeah. fucking worst. <laughs> yeah, You're gonna like yeah, creep on a bunch bad. of young girls. Sure. Yeah. 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 No, for <laughs> sure. And so we were really successful. And I was, you know, I have a lot of shame and embarrassment around myself around that project too, which I finally have kind of, I'm a little more like I don't care anymore, but. Um, we gained a lot of momentum and I was getting interviewed um, a lot by a lot of these like punk rock scenes in different parts of the world, like, you know, Germany and England and just, you know, wherever. And so I got a really big head really quickly. We won the Battle of the Bands at the local college. And so our music was on the radio all the time. What like, year we got was this? Public access. This was 2002 to 2004. Okay. I love that. And so I was like, I'm going to move to Seattle and I'm going to make it like I'm and eventually I'm going to move to L.A. You know, like I'm going to yeah. do this. 
So, you know, my family, we moved to Seattle and I join a different band that's, you know, not very good. And, you know, I'm playing shows all the time, though, like every weekend, you know, and I'm playing with all the bands that I, you know, have built this like scene. Like I joined a scene that I wanted to be a part of. And I was like, you know, in my own way, making my dream come true. And I think my parents were really supportive of that. And I stuck to it. And I, you know basically saw myself becoming what I wanted to become in life at a really young age, which was a punk rock musician that was touring and doing all that kind of stuff. And so I was like, fuck high school. I don't need high school. Like I'm going to go get my GED and fuck living it with my parents. Like I know what I want out of my life, you know? And so like and my mom was pretty punk supportive. Rock. I love it. <laughs> yeah. My mom was supportive. So I moved out, I got my GED and I went off and, Drugs and alcohol kind of took me down. Can I theorize that, and you can agree or disagree, but I wonder if your mom was extra supportive because you were kind of like getting to go live at a time when she was kind of not allowed to because <laughs> she was having a kid. And Yeah, yeah. I think that both my – so my dad had also wanted to be a famous musician. Who doesn't? <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah, I think that my parents saw themselves in what I was doing and wanted to support it and were like, hell yeah, you know, and I think that they were amazing in that while also really naive in a lot of other aspects of it. And I don't think my dad was so much naive about it in certain ways. Like he definitely tried to kind of fight against some of it. But I don't think he really knew how to do that either. Like, it's a hard thing. I think, like, if I were a parent today, there's no way I would have let my kid do any of the stuff my parents let me do. Like, I would be such a, like, you know, the opposite. Like, I would overcompensate, right? And I watched my mom actually do that with my sister. So my sister's 11 years younger than me. My mom watched what happened with me and was like, I'm not doing that again. So my sister grew up with, you know, both parents very structured childhood in a certain comparatively, you know, and she went to private school. She went to private Catholic school. She grew up going to church regularly. I went to church too, but not as like, you know, rigidly. And, you know, college was like instilled as a value system in my sister's life where it wasn't for me, even though my grandparents were all professors, my mom went to college. There was just a lot more of a Gen X, uh, I was filled with Generation X. So I wanted to be a part of Generation X. I surrounded myself with everyone so of that, you know, generation. Yeah. And I, I did it. Like I, I accomplished a lot of my hopes and dreams really early and had a very disappointing demise very early. Too. Before before we hop into the demise, because I, I, I sense <laughs> that as the, the big next step. Can we go down a rabbit hole of punk rock for a minute? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> um, Outside of the, like, you're in a band that's gaining some, like, success, what's the draw? Because I I have answers to these two. These are all, every question I have is a projection. Um, (laughs) What's the draw of the, like, punk rock scene at that age? You know, it's funny because this is, like, kind of embarrassing to admit. So... There was a boy. Like, All I did was listen to Dave Matthews band. No, I'm... Oh God. I never liked Dave <laughs> Matthews band. No offense. <laughs> no offense. But that was something that I was never going to like. There's other things I liked yeah. that were equally embarrassing. But probably, I interrupted. But... It's a boy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, there was a boy. There was two boys that I went to school with that. So I was not really like a girly girl, but I wasn't like 
I was a tomboy for sure in a lot of ways. And there was definitely like, I liked Barbies. I liked makeup and all of that, but I was more of like a neutral girl in comparison to being overly that way. And so I always ended up being friends with all the boys. I'd have like a couple core girlfriends, you know, and then I would be friends with all the boys and always created like kind of these little worlds, you know, with them. And out of that group of guy friends that I had, of course, I had little crushes on some of them. And one of them, after summer break, came back. He had an older brother who was in a Christian punk band. And he came back and he was listening to MXPX and Blink-182 had just come out, you know, and I'd grown up on Green Day. Like I always loved Green Day. And of course, like his little punk, like Converse wearing spiky gelled hair thing. (laughs) There was like a trio of us. It was me and these two boys. And so I come home listening to MXPX and like all into skateboarding, you know, and all this stuff. And my parents were like, no, they're like, you are not (laughs) listening to this crap music so my mom and my dad who are not even together but in their own you know worlds went and bought me all of I still have them like all of these books that like all these old 70s punk photographers had Mm -hmm. done so Stephanie Trinkowski Roberta Bailey Bob Gruen had these books of the blank generation New York punk scene and my mom bought those for me with a stack of VHS, The Filth and the Fury with the Sex Pistols, Rock and Roll High School with the Ramones. There was like a Black Flag movie. There was Erg, a music war, like the whole 80s festival. Yeah. I think I was 10 years old. <laughs> and I just got inundated. You know, I got I Ramones CDs, The Clash, The Sex Pistols, Blondie, The Pretenders, Devo. And a lot of this music I had grown up on, but it wasn't like you know, sinking in. And neither one of my parents wanted me to be a punk rock kid. They were, my mom was like, you're not a punk, you're new wave. And my dad was the metal head, you know, and I was like, no, I'm a punk. Like, that's my thing. So I went, if you're going to punk, you got to punk it. Right. (laughs) I went full blown, like full on obsessed. And, you know, I think they thought it was cute until they saw like the I think there's space for all of it. I love I love some <laughs> some old black flag and I, I'm a big misfits guy, but also give me life in general by MXPX all day long. All day long. Yeah, and I wasn't <laughs> raised with that like coexisting, right? Like yeah, it was yeah. kind of like, no, you're not a like so then of course I did the whole like, oh, that's lame. I'm not listening to that. Ruined my friendship with the oh, boy yeah. I had a crush on. I'm sure you called yeah. a lot of people posers. I would not have been oh, friends I with you. Totally did. Yeah. I was like, ew, you listen to that. And then he the boy I had a crush on got really into Led Zeppelin. So then we definitely like yeah, yeah. went our separate ways. So I'm wearing like dog pile plaid bondage pants, you yeah, know. I'm very familiar. And he's growing his hair out, you know, and doing this. And I'm like, yeah, we're two different worlds. That's so funny. Yeah. It was really fun. I, I know that scene very well at that age, <laughs> but you leaned in hard to the original, like punk shit. Um, yeah. And, and I got, I mean, good really, for your parents. I mean, I got, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm still there. Like, I think that if it weren't for my husband being my husband, I probably would have had more of like a hard cutoff yeah. from the punk scene and would have just been like, I don't want to have anything to do with that. But my husband's still very, I mean, a lot of punk people are still very much like I'm punk for life, you know, and yeah, yeah. I'm definitely not, I, I'm not that person. Yeah. <laughs> I, I gave up on the identity of that a long time ago, but I was like, just literally before we got on here, I was listening to my like high school punk and ska playlist that I have on my fucking iPhone because <laughs> I, I, I love it. It's fantastic. 
I um, will always love punk and punk music. I just don't need to like pigeonhole myself into an identity. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm, I also, yeah. you know, love Ben Folds and Counting Crows and Taylor Swift. So fuck it. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> see, there you go. I love Sade. You know. Yeah, there you go. I want to see. Uh, I never stopped loving Sade, though. We'll say. Okay. <laughs> just putting that out there. Sade, if you're listening. Yeah. <laughs> Sade <love. laughs> for life. Um. All right punk rock hole over um that was a weird sentence descent uh, tell me tell me what that looks like in your own words okay so obviously like drugs and alcohol and all that entered the picture and that kind of was part of the beginning of it um but i had a favorite punk band that i had glommed on to like early on i did their fan club i was very like obsessive teenage girl about them anyone i know and i had this they were called the briefs they're from seattle they got they were pretty well known like in the punk scene but they were never like a huge famous i mean it's a weird thing right it's like you can kind of be famous without being famous that's kind of how they were like they were on mtv and like yeah their music has been in a lot of stuff but they were really well known in the punk scene in seattle in the early 2000s and they were my favorite band. They were like my modern day Ramones. Cause that was kind of the thing that happened to me when I got into punk was I was like, I was born in the wrong time. And then I discovered that there was this whole punk scene happening in the Pacific Northwest at like happening right then that was emerging. And I was like, Oh my God, it felt like the universe had plopped me in the right time (laughs) for when this was happening. And the briefs had been kind of like at the center of it with this record label called dirt nap records. And a bunch of bands were coming out that were getting put out on this record label. So I had this goal. It was like, I am going to make all these people know my name. I'm going to get on this record label and I'm going to somehow end up playing music with all these people. And so that's what I did. And I didn't ever get on Dirt Nap Records, which is okay. It's all right. But um, I did end up in a band with all these people. And I was really young. I think I was 17 or 18 when I joined the band. And um, it, it crushed me. It completely crushed me. Um, I was not really mature enough to handle a lot of the social dynamics that were happening with men and women that were 10 to 20 years older than me, especially men and women who have sex addictions and drug addictions and are taking a lot of that stuff out on a 17, 18 year old girl. And also spending, you know, months at a time in a van in those situations. And so I, quit the tour the third tour that that band went on i quit while we were in europe and i quit with one of my bandmates who i had been in a band with prior to that so we were both missing our boyfriends and we're like fuck this like we're getting treated like shit and this isn't fun you know and i'd offered to finish the tour i didn't like just bail in the middle of the tour i I got fired in the middle because I basically said, I'm not going to stay in the band once we get back. I was like, I'm quitting after this tour. And the guy that whose band it was, like the leader of the band, he was like, I don't want you here if you don't want to be here. So I'm just going to send you home. So I was like, cool, that sounds good. So me and the friend of mine who was also in the band, we had one night in Blackpool. Like we had a full day in Blackpool, England at the um, tour manager's brother's house or one of the guys, I can't remember exactly his relationship. And it was awkward because we had just gotten like quit slash kicked out. And so we just like kind of hold hold up in this room for an entire 24 hours and just watched Lost because he had Lost on DVD. 
and we just like watched Lost the whole time until we had to go, and then we flied home back to Seattle because that's where I think I was living in Portland at the time. I was living in Portland, so I think I flew to Seattle though to be with my family first, and it was humiliating because it was like this big thing for me to join this band with all these people and tour. You know, I got to play all these like, you know, kind of these classic punk clubs that I had been reading about in these books since I was ten years old, and it was. A big deal. It was amazing. <laughs> and I was having a terrible time. And I got to play with all these bands too that are like legendary and meet all these people from the punk scene that are legendary. And it because being in that band was so destructive for me in so many ways, I just I did I wasn't enjoying any of it. But the way that the punk scene and the rock and roll scene and just any music scene or the inter- entertainment industry, as we know, is to women, during that time, I wasn't allowed to have problems with what was happening i basically was just told that i was uptight or a brat or dramatic or wrong i was just told i was straight up wrong and that those things weren't happening and so you know i didn't know what else to do so i left and then after a couple months i had a lot of humility and i was just like i just obviously can't handle what being famous or what rock and roll is like i if being famous and being a musician and being a rock star means that you have to endure this and be this kind of person, then I don't want it. Yeah. I don't want it at all. And I I made that choice for myself and I didn't play music for six years. I ended up writing an email to that guy that whose band it was and apologized to him a couple months later because I was just like, I must just have been this terrible bratty teenager that was so immature and didn't know how to deal with this stuff. And I was humiliated. Like I felt bad, you know? And now as an adult who's 34, I look back on that and I'm so proud of myself. I'm like, I am so proud of myself that I left that situation and I'm so proud of myself that I was a brat and that I was an asshole and that I was a bitch because those people fucking deserved it. And I should have been even worse is how I feel about it because I just want to take my young self, especially now like the Me Too movement and like all these things that, you know, that wasn't really an option for me back then was like advocating for myself was just me being a difficult bitch, you know? And so now all these years later, I'm like, thank God, all the situations I've left where I've done a big middle finger, I'm so proud of myself. But I think that, um, you know, what happened after that was I tried to get sober and I failed. And so I spent another like five or six years partying and drinking and doing drugs until I joined another band and I started to realize that I wanted to fix my relationship to music and not have alcoholism be something that I had, like I would have to drink to feel comfortable in those environments. And so that kind of pushed me into sobriety. Well, that, I mean, I feel like all the lines are connected there, right? Like you, you went out and you sounds like, I'm, I'm assuming experienced like trauma after trauma <laughs> all while you were like in this band, probably drinking, I don't know, not going to imply anything else you might've been doing, but like, <laughs> um, and your mind's going to eventually fucking connect those two things. Right. So you're like, all right, well, if I stay away from that, then I don't have to like deal with that. Or I don't have to worry about that happening to me or whatever that looks like. Um, so I, I definitely can see where you would, those lines would be, crossed and and how you're thinking of that and i'm also i'm curious so you talked about how like i'm gonna go i'm gonna be a famous musician i'm gonna go tour like that was the dream what is it like 
if you can remember and think back to that time, like seeing like, oh, this is what I wanted and this fucking sucks. I'm still not over it, to be honest. Yeah. Like I'm that whole period of my life totally shattered me in every way. And um, I feel like the shoemaker that doesn't make shoes, you know, like I'm getting emotional talking about it because every time that I've tried to revisit that world, it is traumatizing that every world time. Just being playing music or. Yeah. Okay. That, that kind of, even after sobriety, like I've continued to have things happen yeah. over and over and over again. And so I think at this point in my life, I'm trying really hard to figure out how to, like, I've been trying hard to figure out how to redefine its role in my life and even just what I do with it. But I think that it's hard when like you formulate it, like, cause I think I was seven that when I wanted to become a musician and it wasn't until I was 12 that I had my first real band, but I was so young. Like it was such a formative part of my brain that, um, even with all the work that I've tried to do around it in terms of redefining it, it's almost kind of like a, wherever you go, there you are kind of thing. So like, even though I've moved and I've lived in different cities and I've been a part of different music scenes, I'm still me with my connections to certain things. And I'm married to somebody that's still very much connected to all of that. And so it's hard for me to ever be completely free of that chapter of my life with the certain situation that I'm in currently (laughs) in terms of like who my husband is and where we're kind of sitting within all of that. So, you know, I've tried really hard to make peace with certain aspects of that and kind of, you know, but yeah, like I, I have a lot of anger and resentment towards the entertainment world and the music world for where it's still really far behind. And I think that um, as a woman, like I used to resent the whole, it's different as a woman. Like I used to always kind of be like, no, it's not like I've had a great time. And, you know, I kind of felt that way when I was more naive and now it's also a lot more blatantly obvious. Yeah. <laughs> I had a really punk rock attitude. And I, <laughs> I mean, if you're willing to play the game in yeah. a certain way, it does work out for you. Like Joan Jett, she's great at playing the game. She's played that game. Yeah. And then you look at Jackie Fox from the runaways that, you know, couldn't really play the game because she was too traumatized. Like I kind of fit more in that category, you know? And so, yeah, I I have a lot of respect for women in the music scene who have learned to play the game and have had a lot of success with it. But at the same time, I know what it takes to do that. And I, there's a certain amount of integrity that I feel like I just can't compromise in myself. Yeah. Are you able to separate the music from the like the fame or that the results, you know, like when you play music, is there a part of you that does it just for you that you can latch on to, or is it still like, I want an audience for this and I want that like roller coaster up? That's a good question. I'm a Leo. I don't know if other people listening to this would know what that means, but Leo sure is the sign that rules performance. <laughs> yeah and entertainment and self-expression. So I think for me, the relationship to validation from an audience is something that I'm always going to desire. And I think that the thing I've learned is it doesn't have to be through music. And it also doesn't have to happen on a fame scale for it to be 
validating for me. So I think I've found, I actually really prefer small, intimate connections. I prefer small, intimate environments. I prefer going to small, intimate concerts and playing small, intimate concerts over these like huge giant things. But I think because I, at a young age was like, I'm going to make it and I'm going to do this. I still have that sense of failure. So it's weird because it's like, even though Annalisa adult today doesn't actually want those things. The inner child Annalisa is like, but you were supposed to do that, you know? And it's kind of this weird thing of like, I don't even think I could handle it if it happened. I think I would break, you know, like, I think I would hate it and I would be very like, no, don't look at me. (laughs) Yeah. It's such an interesting thing to still like to recognize, like, I don't want the dreams I had as a kid but also feel a sense of resentment for not having them, which yeah. I, I, like, that, that's so interesting. Like when I think of things like I remember being a kid and I was like, I'm going to be a math teacher. There's no fucking part of me right now. It's like, God, I <laughs> can't believe I'm not a math. <laughs> like, fuck that. Um, yeah. And now the music thing, like I can relate to, I never experienced um, anything to the level that you've described, but fuck, I chased that dragon for years um yeah and then didn't play my guitar after say validation i'm glad like i'm glad you brought that up just as it relates to music (laughs) um and i share this just because i think i don't know you might get something out of it or it might just be something i cut out completely when i edit this but (laughs) uh in 2020 during the pandemic i was playing on facebook live every every day at like lunchtime I was playing like a few songs and I thought I was doing it for me (laughs) and then it like just became watching like how many views was it getting and what are the comments and what are the likes and uh occasionally I would get like compliments and stuff and it would you know hit my dopamine and then it would just immediately go away and I was like I need more and when I realized at that same time I was I was doing therapy as I do and realized like, Oh, I don't like myself. And I haven't liked myself like pretty much my whole life. It was a big, like epiphany moment for me. Um, but the thing I realized was I don't want to like play these fucking songs for these people. I've been doing like most of what I do for the attention for like the music and singing and, uh, is all about validation. And a lot of times, most of the time, I was not doing it for me. I was doing it for other people to like me. And so when I was like, I'm going to put this down and I'm not going to touch this unless I want to. And like, it's for me. And I didn't play yeah. guitar for like fucking years, a couple of years. Yeah. And that was eye opening too. Cause it's like, Oh, I didn't want to do this nearly as much for myself as I apparently wanted to do for other people. And it was all about validation. And then like, really transitioning to like, Oh, I need to love myself before I can really embrace other people's like validation compliments, everything else, um, in regards to playing songs and stuff. And it's still like, it's still a weird struggly battle that I'm not super comfortable with. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's an important thing to acknowledge why you're doing something, because I think that it's really common for any artist of anything to forget that, to forget the why. And I think the part that's really hard for me is that I genuinely, like my favorite part of music 
other than just like listening to it and being a fan of it is I genuinely come alive. Like there's this part of me that wakes up that feels the most authentic to myself when I'm writing a song. And I, it's like, I can't, there's nothing else in my life that gives that to me. And I know I'm actually pretty good at it because I've had a lot of other people try to get in on songs that I'm writing or copy songs that I'm writing or like rip off things that I'm doing. And I, it's not just songwriting. Like I've had people do that with stuff, other stuff that I have going on in my life. But it, you know, when you see that starting to happen, you're like, Oh, I'm doing something right. You know? And so the person that really like, I mean, there was a couple, there's quite a handful of people, but one of the people that really made me want not just to be an amazing songwriter that like perfects this craft, but also that it does something for people was David Bowie. Like the way David Bowie made me feel, I was like, I want to make people feel this way. I want to like the way David Bowie made me feel was like, he brought me to God. Like that's how it felt. And I was like, I want to bring people to this feeling. Like I want people to feel like they're at church and that they're experiencing love and that they're experiencing like the purity of what us as humans are here to do. And I think that it's really hard to want your songwriting to be that immaculate and then not also want the validation or the, the audience. How are you going to know it's that good if people don't fucking tell you? And if you're not like at the fucking top, you <laughs> yeah, know? Yeah. And so I think, and that seed was planted in my head when I was that little, like I was a little kid, you know? So I think that that having that drive or that want or that desire and like saying, like for years, I would just cry out of pure jealousy of the Beatles. Like there was times when I would watch a Beatles documentary and I had to turn it off. I was like, I can't handle how good this is. Like, it's so it's bringing me to God. Like, that's how I wow. feel, you know, like, I'm like, why couldn't I have been in the Beatles? You know, like <laughs> I would get those feelings. So it's like, I don't, I don't just want attention. And that's the reason why I've also left a lot of projects because getting attention is really easy. I want to be good. I want to, I want to, I want to bring meaning to yeah. something. And if I'm not doing that, if I'm not doing this that well, then I don't want to have anything to do with it. I'm just embarrassed after that, you know? So yeah. that's why I have a lot of humiliation, embarrassment out of all the bands I've been in or musical projects I've been in because they've never hit that way. It's always kind of, it has been kind of a like, I'm just doing this for fun, you know? I wonder what uh, the audio version of the gesture is. <laughs> just Yeah, the jer- I'm doing the jerk off gesture, yeah, you know, like I'm just kind of jerking just off. like, should I just insert the- like a sound? Yeah, like, yeah, totally. <laughs> Um, you know, like, cause that's kind of how it feels. And that's how I felt in the, like the band that I was in that I quit, that I have a lot of trauma around was the cute lepers. And that's how it felt. Just felt kind of like everybody jerking off. And I'm not saying that because Steve was an a, amazing songwriter because he is, I looked up to him as a punk rock songwriter. I feel like he, you know, is amazing guitar player. Amazing. Like the briefs are funny band. Cause I don't think everything has to be deep and meaningful. That's just what I wanted for yeah, myself. Yeah. But you know, like I can take, all music and all art for what it is and see it as valuable. And the briefs were like a funny band. Like they, you know, made you laugh and made you have fun and, you know, kind of in a lot of the way that punk bands do. So I had a lot of admiration and respect for what he was doing, but it just wasn't what I wanted to do for me. And it just, it did kind of feel like a joke kind of for me. And just like, this wasn't what I wanted. And so, yeah. So like years later, like I always had, you know, a solo kind of side of myself where I was writing stuff. And I wrote a solo album that was spiritually 
driven that I feel like was in more of the vein of what I had always aspired to. And um, there's trauma around that now. And so hopefully in a couple of years, I'll re-record it. But one of the things that happened in that process was I didn't want to share it. <laughs> it's like, I actually don't want, because there's this whole other side of that whole, like what it invites in that I'm not like ignorant to, you know? And I'm like, I don't want all of that. Like this actually feels too special for me to like give to people. So now I have this kind of like weird, I'm weird with things now because of what I've experienced. What is, um, I'm going to jump back. What does getting sober look like that decision that like, is there an antithesis other than music? Like what, what does that look like? How does that play out for you? In what way? Like just when it happened and kind of what was, yeah, I I mean, that's a, that's a, very conscious decision to make so how did you end up making that decision and and what did that look like was it just uh and and i i asked that because i I don't want to imply that like everyone that gets sober it just fucking sucks and it's terrible because i don't think that's true uh, yeah (laughs) well that's a good point like i wasn't one of those people i mean i went through a stint when i was young where i was like a wake up drink do drugs and go to work but at the time when I decided to get sober that was definitely not me like I was somebody that I felt like had a pretty good handle on things for the most part you know it's like I had a full-time job I was in a good you know I was in a leadership role I was making good money um I had pretty good relationships like I wasn't having some like demise of self where I was losing everything you know or something like that but what I was doing was um resorting to a lot of patterns of behavior that were destructive that I was like, I might end up accidentally dead in a gutter somewhere. You know, I was in New York, my husband was playing a festival that he was putting on and I had ran into one of my old, my room, the woman that I had started drinking with, I had gone, she had showed up at the show and we were like reliving our youth. Oh man. And she was, yeah. And she was dating a drug dealer and he had a new gun on him and i was like you know cool let's see your gun like i'm all like we're just hanging out having a good time and then it turned like that night turned and he started to get really aggressive and verbally uh, like kind of abusive to her while the gun's like sitting on the table and i'm sitting there high out of my mind like super high like i can't function like i cannot leave this apartment safely and i'm in new york city i don't know new york city well enough to feel like i could just go And I just remember sitting there being like, what am I doing with my life? Like, why am I in this situation? Like, this is some shit Annalisa when she was 18 would have been in, not like Annalisa in mid-20s. I mean, obviously mid-20s is still young, but like at the time I felt like I was more together. So this was like, a, I was like, what is going on? So that was kind of like where I started to feel like I was at a bottom. And then a month later, I was at a bar with a friend and we were just having a good time playing giant Jenga. And Lemmy from Motorhead had just passed away and we decided to have a drink for Lemmy. And that was the last drink that I had because, you know, he obviously passed away from lifestyle choices. And I remember sitting there and I could just feel my brain getting dumber. And I was just like, why am I living like this? Like, I don't want to keep cheersing to people who are passing away from lifestyle choices like this. And while I myself am doing that. And that was always kind of a hypocrisy with the rock and roll scene that used to drive me crazy too yeah so i quit drinking uh after that night and 
yeah, it was hard. I was, I thought I was going to lose my husband and all my friends. And, you know, I thought that I wasn't going to be very supported. I thought I was going to fail at it too. Um, but I just, I knew I needed to do it. So that was kind of when I would say like my second spiritual awakening happened and I have just been alcohol free since. How long are you, how long have you been sober? It'll be eight years in December. Nice. Congrats. Thanks. Congrats. Um, I'm going to completely shift the lens here. Tell me about astrology. <laughs> Where does that intertwine here? Because now it seems to be a pretty big part of your life, at least from the outside. So when does that start? What does that look like? And what are you doing now with it? Yeah, so I was raised around a lot of this stuff. Like when I was born, my mom had my birth chart read and okay. I grew up around tarot cards and all of that. And so I would say astrology was kind of always something I was, you know, dabbling an interest in, but nothing like I'm going to be an astrologer. I never had any, I always thought this stuff was kind of kooky. I just thought it was fun. And so after my first year sober, my first year sober was, I got really obsessive with health and fitness and wellness and was kind of thinking of becoming a nutritionist. I was looking at, you know, taking an integrative nutrition certification course and all of that, becoming a wellness coach. And um, one of the things that that world was missing for me was that I didn't really, it wasn't making me happy. Like, I think there's kind of this misconception that like you get sober and everything gets better. That's not necessarily true. So <laughs> I think there's a lot that gets better, but you know, when you're an addict, you make a lot of things addiction. So it's like fitness and health became an addiction. And I was still struggling a lot with my mental health and depression and just like my anxiety and stuff like that. And so I, in the past had dabbled in spirituality and I had a lot of books on spirituality that had been kind of like my lifelines at moments in life where I was, you know, not doing well. And I just kind of felt like I needed to pull on one of those lifelines. And so I'd grabbed my tarot cards for the first time in probably like five years and did a tarot reading and it was just blown away. And I looked up the reader or the creator of the deck. It was a deck my mom had given me when I was 17 and I just out of curiosity was like this woman's deck and her words are like really hitting me for where I'm, what I'm feeling and where I'm at in my life. I wonder if she's still around. Cause this book had come out in the seventies, you know, yeah, this yeah. was like, you know, long gone, you know? So I look her up, I find her on Facebook and <laughs> I course. send her a message and I'm living in Oakland, California at the time. And it turns out she's living in Santa Cruz. Huh. So we happen to be in the same part of the world. Right. So I'm like, this is cool. So I message her and I'm like, Hey, I'm, you know, I don't know if you meet with people or like what you do. And she responded to me and she's like, yeah, come see me for an astrology reading at my house. And so me and my friend went and it was the first time I had my chart done as an adult. And I was just blown away. Like I was like, this is the answer to everything that I've been feeling and going through. And even all my Leo, like, want to be rock star stuff like all that stuff made so much more sense to me as to why I had felt pulled away from it yeah like that was all in my astrology and I was just like this is crazy so I asked her if she would teach me astrology and I became her student and I just immersed myself in that whole world and I just it's one of those things that I I got really good at it and I got really successful and um started to build a pretty strong practice 
And then some things kind of pulled me away from it in 2020 that had happened. And I was like, I don't, my, I have health problems right now and doing holding space for other people started to bring up my health issues. And so I actually haven't been reading professionally since 2021 um due to that but that's why i kind of just do the horoscope videos and kind of things in a more limited capacity because it's a little less triggering for my health problems but that's how i got into becoming an astrologer i never thought that was something i would ever do it always seemed kind of weird i didn't even know it was a thing really (laughs) that i mean i knew there was astrologers but i didn't really know what it was you know and now it's definitely been my light in the darkness for sure that's awesome i'm sorry that it's triggered some health problems but that's great that you found something for you yeah it's fun Um, if anything it's fun (laughs) perfect (laughs) yeah um i I mean i think that brings us kind of current right (laughs) yeah that's where i'm at (laughs) perfect uh where can people find you if they want to follow along on your astrology journeys and whatnot I have a YouTube channel that I think it's just my name. I think it's Annalisa yeah. Six, and um, I do the monthly astrology forecast and horoscopes on there. And then the Sober Curator, obviously, that yeah. you and I are a part of, is kind of like my main hub where I feel like you can really follow along. I'm kind of bad about um, writing; like I don't write anymore. It's just the YouTube videos that yeah. Elise just plugs into the That's website. Right. Well, perfect. Yeah. Um, I have to, I, I saved this because I was like, again, not about me, but you said some stuff that I relate to that I think is so like music songwriter specific. Um, so like, I never envisioned myself like famous necessarily, but I like big stadium show. Sure. That'd be great. <laughs> um, yeah, but yeah. not in a fame way. Cause my goal was always, and I guess still is depending on how you want to look at that. Um, there's songs, right. When you're having a really shitty time or going through something, there's like a song that you can connect with and play on repeat. And like it was, I mean, you even more than me talking about like, I can't watch the Beatles. It's too good. Um, yeah. <laughs> but like, my dream with music was always like, I want to provide that for someone. Like if I can take this deeply personal experience for me that I've written down and I've put some fucking chords to, and someone can listen to that and it helps them like realize that maybe this breakup was a good idea or realize like, like that, that's the goal. And to your point, how can you know that unless someone tells you? And isn't that the validation that I was trying to get away from? Yeah. And so it's a, it's a vicious circle. And so now I've just committed like, I'm just going to put my stuff out there and just assume that's happening at one point, maybe. Uh, (laughs) Well, the thing too, like this is making me think of, because this is really common in spiritual communities is that there's essentially like, this is very esoteric and like spiritual nerd of me, but I think that there's, and this can be a savior complex too. There's certain ways that we can feel like we want to wake people up. Yeah. Like there's some kind of truth, you know, or some kind of like, there's a frequency of truth or a frequency of love. And the sober community is like this too, right? Where it's like, we want to wake people up from this veil 
and show people this elevated kind of consciousness that we can be operating from that's supposed to bring peace, harmony, and stability and like love essentially between everybody. And there's in every industry that exists in some form. And that's like some authentic truth, right? And it's when we start to lose that, when we start to get into envy, jealousy, comparison, competition, you know, and we're driven stuff. from that place. Yeah, yeah then it, it, de- it dumbs everything down. And I think that's the part for me that anytime I'm in a circle of people where I feel like it's getting dumbed down to that, I immediately bail. And yeah. I, th- I have a flight response. I'm like, I can't, do this if this is where this is stemming from yeah. not saying that it isn't in my nature to sometimes feel that way because i'm human but it's like i want to feel like i'm operating from this elevated place and i think music was so hard to do that in when i found astrology and tarot i felt like oh i'm more able to like get to the source in waking people up through astrology or tarot but the same thing happens like people don't necessarily want that right so yeah. i think it's like you have to just trust that the people that want that are going to find it in whatever way they're going to find it. And that whatever way that you decide to walk in life is going to do that by people watching you. If you're walking authentically, whether you're famous or not, it's not about that. Right. Yeah. Therapists are a great example of that. Like that's another industry where I think people. Oh yeah. I love. Can I give the whole world therapy? That'd be great. Talk about elevation. Yeah. Well, in your podcast, you know, like you're here, like is, I'm sure yeah. all the stories that people share, you know, and everybody listening, like it's the same kind of thing. Oh, like yeah. You're, yeah. I have to hold on to that. Um, that's like been a gratitude practice of mine because there's, I'll get messages semi regularly where people are just like, hey, this episode helped me through this, or um, like your friend talking about her non binary kid, like, helped us teach about like uh trans rights and stuff like all this stuff that is hugely impactful for this small population but like hugely impactful and that's what matters and like sometimes i'll get caught up in the numbers and i have to kind of like let that go and be like no it's but it's doing this good stuff it doesn't matter if it's doing a bunch of good stuff for like two million people or like four people it's just that it's doing that um and i'm providing that platform and that's what i need to hold on to and be grateful for so yeah. And who can handle 2 million people anyways? <laughs> when I see like what like real thing. Okay, let me just say this. This will make you feel better. So, well, maybe it, you already feel better. You don't need to be feel better. Anybody <laughs> listening, if you have issues with like thinking that you want more attention, just wait. So my husband, you know, is like underground famous, like in the punk scene, he is famous. And this year I would say was like the most attention that he's ever received. And as the wife and someone who's not famous, what that did to us this summer was so brutal. Like it was so emotionally intense. And that was on such a small like level compared to what real famous, I I don't want to diminish, sorry, he's not going to listen to this, but I don't (laughs) want to like diminish his fame, but you know what I mean? Like people that are like huge or whatever. And I'm just like the amount of strength and like just it, it, I'm so amazed at the fact that people can handle that level of pressure and that level of attention because the tiny bit that has come our way with him, it's just, it's like, it's made me really not like, it's not. Oh, I'm sure that some level it's gotta be like a little triggering for you. Cause like from back in the day of doing touring and stuff and oh yeah oh definitely yeah, <laughs> yeah. no there's a lot of triggers <laughs> this year was a really hard year uh, well, it's almost over so, yeah it's kind of a 
<laughs> yeah, it's a double-edged sword though with that stuff. Like it's kind of the what is there? There's like an analogy with it where it's like you want these things, but you don't think it's gonna come with this set of things. But oh, yeah. Yeah, it's weird. I see things very differently, like after this year with that, because I think it's easy to kind of like you could watch somebody, right, getting a lot of recognition and you could just assume that it's all great, you know, because you're seeing all this great stuff happen. And I guess my point is, is that's not necessarily what's happening, you know, and we see it with a lot of rock stars that pass away young, you know, or people that pass away young or like kind of cat stevens like he gave up his entire artistic career and became a muslim muslim right i think that's what yeah yeah and now i i feel like i get cat stevens a lot <laughs> with his life choices he became a teacher you know he was like i don't need to do this well yeah but it's like anyways, people want like yeah. taylor swift fame but it's like yeah but then you can't even like fucking go to ralph's and get a fuck you know like, you can't do anything that, and right? I, why so, would you want that that's that would be Terrible. That's why I was thinking about this the other day because they were, um, someone was talking about going somewhere and like celebrity being there. And so there was a bunch of paparazzi and like you can barely get in and stuff. And I was like, God, I wish, like if I had any level of fame, I wish it was like as a writer. So you you get like that back end validation piece, but then you can still like live your fucking life. No one's like, oh my God, is that the writer of, no, because no one, I don't, you can tell, you can tell me like four writers that I could recognize if I saw them, I think I'd still right. just be like, I don't know. Um, no, I've had that same thought actually. Yeah. So there you go. The writer. Yeah. The writer <laughs> or the, even podcast is a good one. If you don't have video, like you don't have video, like you might not recognize yeah. somebody, oh, yeah. you know, that yeah, you listen to their podcast perfect. all the time. It's, 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 that is the perfect thing to be famous for. That said, um, on the same note of your album and afraid to release it, I, I wrote a book about the two years I lived in Los Angeles and I finished it a while ago and I, I'm like, <laughs> I've, I've let like four or five people read it and it's all been good feedback other than like, you know, writing crap, um, like some grammar fixes and shit, but it's like, uh, do I want to put this out there? Cause it's like, here's a, here's a story about me, you know, fucking a bunch of people on Craigslist and doing a bunch of drugs and like, that sounds fun. Actually, that sounds like a good book. It's a lot of, it's a lot of stories. Um, but you it's, have an alias though. That's what the authors that don't want to be associated yeah, yeah. with what they put out do, which I think is a great idea. Yeah. Well, you release the album, I'll release the book. <laughs> I'll make a deal. With you. Uh, we'll see. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, this has been an absolute pleasure. <laughs> talking to yeah you. thanks so much i had no idea what we were going to talk about but it was fun see it worked out it <laughs> did about you. yeah thanks for having me and uh i hope that your next interview is equally interesting <laughs> doubt it no i can't say that oh yeah well i'll cut that out because <laughs> i don't know who it's gonna be um yeah but i appreciate it yeah thank you so much for taking time today thank yeah thanks for asking me all right bye, okay, bye. you and i have lots in common request is sent would you like to be my friend would you like to be my friend all right you just listened to my interview with annalisa six and guys i want to look up every one of those bands um i'm so curious and if anybody wants to wax intellectual about random punk rock topics from the 90s and early 2000s, scratch that, 90s and before, because I don't know if I can 
comment on anything from the early 2000s in that realm. Uh, yeah, ring me up. Give me a ring, ring a ding. That's a phrase, right? I loved having her on here, and I think there's a billion more conversations we can have. Definitely going to have to have her back to discuss. I mean, so many things. I feel like we just grazed the surface on everything except for the music stuff. <laughs> and, and I cut out some of the more in-depth uh, ramblings that I had on songwriting. But regardless, uh, thank you, Annalisa, if you're listening, for doing that. And thank you to you guys for listening to the episode. If you are hearing this on release day, tomorrow's Halloween. So I hope you guys have some spooky ideas. What are you going to be for Halloween? Tell me. Someone tell me. Text me right now. Do you have my number? It's dink, dink, dunk, dink, dunk, dink, dunk. I'm not going to tell you my number on a freaking podcast. Come on. We have downloads in crazy countries all over the world. Be getting international phone calls. Um, yeah, stick around. We got so much more fun stuff coming up. Uh, on the note of music that we were just talking about, I went to a concert last week, or week before. I went to the concert two weeks ago and, and ended up interviewing the person I saw play. Who was that? You'll have to wait and find out. Lots of fun stuff in store. And if you're a Patreon subscriber, I'm sorry. I've not been super active on there. Uh, I know it's only a dollar oh nine a month, but I appreciate the support and I need to throw some extra stuff up there. So I have that in the workings as well. And that's about it, guys. A special thanks to Talia Dalton for the theme song. If you don't know Talia, go check her out and listen to some of her amazing songs. Her voice is just to die for. And that's about it. I'm going to let you go. But I love you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.